It was Friday night, and uh, he found himself again in the car. He was driving to the place that he knew he shouldn't be heading, but he was going anyways. And he was, uh, he was sure to make sure that nobody who knew him saw him. And he drove purposefully for a while, and then he, as he got closer, started to have that inward struggle. That struggle of, should I? Am I really? Am I heading there for sure? And he found himself uh, going in circles around the spot. The place he'd been to so many times. The, the, the familiar ground. And he knew what he would feel if he went through with it. He would feel self-loathing. He would be angry with himself. He would wonder, why did I do that again? And in spite of all that, he did it again. It doesn't matter what the it is. It doesn't matter who it is. But my guess is all of us have done that, been that person. We've all been there where we have struggled with a behavior that we just can't seem to rid ourselves of. We've all done that where we keep going back, back, back. And we think, if I really followed Jesus, if I really believed in Jesus, I wouldn't struggle with this. I wouldn't continue to do do this. This wouldn't even be a temptation anymore. I mean, we've watched TBN and we've seen people on TV get up and say, oh, the Lord delivered me from this. 30 years, 40 years of addiction, of, of, of repeated sin in my life. And God just, and we think God hasn't done that. For me. And we wrestle with why do we keep going back to the hog trough? Why do we keep returning to our sin? Why can't we just beat this thing? Anybody been there? You know, the old word for it is besetting sin. Those sins, that that signature sin is kind of the new terminology for it. That signature sin, that's just your signature. It's who, uh, that sin that you just wrestle and struggle with. Perhaps it's addiction. Perhaps it's gossip. Perhaps it's greed. Perhaps it's lust. Perhaps it's self-righteousness. But whatever it is, my guess is that every single one of us, actually it's beyond a guess. I know every single one of us has a besetting sin, has a signature sin. And if you're like me, you've wrestled with it, you've struggled with it, you've prayed about it, you've, you've tried, you've read a book, you've talked to somebody, you've done things to try to offset this. And then you read a book like Romans. Chapter 7. And you read about a man named Paul. And you read about Paul who... Uh, 
killed people. It wasn't really his besetting sin. I don't think that's what he was struggling with in Romans 7. But he would go and he would kill Christians. He didn't like them. He thought they were wrong. Aren't you glad that that doesn't happen in our country anymore when you disagree with somebody? Paul killed Christians and on his way to Damascus, God showed up. God knocked him off his donkey and onto his other donkey. (laughs) And he converted Paul. Paul said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus who whom thou, right? The old King James, whom thou is persecuting this. Oh my God. And Paul at that moment gave his life to Christ. And a lot of things changed about Paul. In fact, one was his name. When that happened, his name was Saul and Jesus gave him a new name, Paul. But it appears not everything changed about Paul because in Romans 7, we read that he says, the thing that I hate To do, I keep on doing. And don't you wish you would have said what it was? Don't you? And part of why we want to see what it was was so we could all go, well, at least I don't struggle with that. (laughs) At least I'm not as bad as Paul. And that's probably why he was smart enough and the Holy Spirit led him not to write it out for us. Instead, he just said, the thing I hate Because all of us have that thing we hate, but we keep doing it anyway. We know it's self-destructive. We know it's not helpful. We know we'll regret it. We know that we hate it. We keep on doing it. We know it will hurt others. We know it has consequences, but we keep on doing it. Is there any hope for us? Well, in the story of Abraham, we're going to find out Abraham's besetting sin. And you and I, we're going to look at him, and if you're like me, you're going to be like, man, this guy's an idiot. But as soon as we point a finger at him, we need to remember that this is a mirror. As we read of him, We should see us. We should look at our signature sin and we should wrestle with that. And we should wonder, is there a God of hope for us? We pick up Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 20 today. This is a lot easier sermon than last week. You're not going to squirm as much. Some of you may squirm more. We'll find out. In, Abra- in, in Genesis chapter 20, you're going to read this story. And if you read, you know, when you start out in the Bible, uh, Gen- Gen- January 1st, which is coming up, and we can pass out Bible reading plans for everybody. And you usually start with Genesis 1. And this would be on January 20th, you read this passage. And usually when you read it, you're like, did, did, I, did I skip back? I've read this before. Because you've read this before. Or at least something very similar. And that's the idea with a besetting, a signature sin. You've seen it before. This is a sequel. This is Abraham, part two. And in 
Genesis chapter 12, you read about the first time he did this. In Genesis 20, which is many years later, 25 years later, he's still doing it. And I don't know how that makes you feel. I don't know if that makes you upset that, oh, great, Abraham was still struggling with things 25 years later. And some of you are thinking, I do not want to keep struggling with this for the next 25 years. And maybe some of you that discourages you, maybe others you think, oh, that's a little encouraging to know that Father Abraham, whom 60% of the earth's population traces back to in some religious sense, struggled for at least 25 years with a besetting sin. And we think, at least I'm not as bad as him. I'm only 24. Well, wherever you find yourself, listen to Abraham and his story. Now, Abraham moved on from there into the region of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while, he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, oh, what is he saying? His wife, she is my sister. This is what we saw in Genesis chapter 12 when he went down into Egypt and he lied about Sarah and he said, say you're my sister. And she said, okay, I'll say I'm your sister. And they played up this whole game and she was taken into Pharaoh's harem as one of his wives. Gee, I wonder how this one will turn out. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Hmm, I've read that somewhere. Why? She's 90. I mean, no offense if you're 90, okay? Is she smoking hot? I mean, what's the deal here? Probably the, the, the rabbis have struggled with interpreting this passage for a long time. In fact, some of them, <laughs> the best interpretation of this was in the Tanakh where they said she had some kind of miraculous beauty treatment and all the wrinkles just went away. Don't you wish that was in there, ladies? <laughs> wow, that was like the biggest, uh-huh, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, for 1995, I can, no. <laughs> Note to prosperity preachers, think of that. Anyways, um. I think the best explanation for this is Abraham's really wealthy and really powerful. And King Abimelech says, hey, I want to align myself with him. And the best way in the ancient world to align yourself with somebody else was to take one of his daughters or sisters into marriage with you. And it basically said, we're buddies, we're allies. This is our treaty. Your wife or, or now my new wife, your sister is now the covenant between us. You will not attack me. You will bless me. You will help me. Uh, we just write out contracts and covenants and, and uh, uh, treaties and people abide or don't abide by them. In the old ancient world, they would enter into marriages. And I think that's what's going on here. Abimelech knows that Abraham defeated four kings with 318 men. Abimelech knows that Abraham is a very wealthy man. He's watched his herds walk by and into his land. By the way, they, they had open range back then. And so he's being shrewd and he says, I don't want to be attacked by this guy. I don't want him to take over my land. I think I'll enter into arrangement with him. I think that's the motivation. 
So he takes Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead. That's a bad dream. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Yeah, I know. She's married to me, God. I mean, what are you getting at? Now, Abimelech had not gone near her. (laughs) So that's the Bible's uh, euphemism for saying he had not known her, which is another biblical euphemism for saying they had not had sex. In case you were wondering. Um, And that's important because Sarah needs to have a kid. Because God said, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. And once again, they are endangering this promise of God. And now the question is, is is Abimelech the daddy? And so God steps in because God often has to step in. And doesn't let him go near her. So he said, Abimelech says this, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Kind of feel sorry for Abimelech, don't you? In fact, one of the things that's going on in this passage is Abimelech is acting like the righteous man and Abraham's acting like the unrighteous man. You might have heard some of those same words in how Abraham reasoned with God about not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, for the sake of righteous people, would you destroy the whole city? And here you hear Abimelech, who doesn't know the Lord, praying to the Lord. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That's a really difficult concept. Not that God kept him from sinning, but the fact that we could have a clear conscience and do sin. That flies in the face of our culture. We often think that sin is those things that you just know you did wrong. And so you feel bad about it or other people feel bad about it. Um, And more and more in our culture, it seems that people are sinning with a clear conscience. In fact, we talked a little bit about that last week. And just because you have a clear conscience does not mean that your behavior, your actions are not in fact sin against the Lord. We have it right here in Genesis 20. You read this on January 20th, 2013. I just reminded you, you can be sinning and not feel guilt. You can be sinning and feel like you have a clear conscience before the Lord. Well, that was a little rabbit trail. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. (laughs) That's God talking about Abraham. He is a prophet. He's a bad prophet, but he's a prophet. He's slow, he's stupid, he keeps doing the same thing, but he's a prophet. He is a prophet. And he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. I mean, could you, you know, that's probably how it happened. 
when you read that, do you just kind of read it and go, oh, that's interesting? Or do you kind of add sound effects? I like to add sound effects. I like to think God's messing with people. You know, this is a dream. Or you will in the special effects and die. Do you remember how the angels were warning Lot in Sodom? Hey, get out of the city. We're going to destroy it. If you don't get out of here, you're going to die. Get out now, middle of the night. And what does Lot do? Sleeps on it. The next morning, by midday, he made his way out of there. What does Abimelech do? By the way, these are all intentional. You know that? These are all intentional word choices and and time frames. Abimelech, it says, early the next morning. (laughs) Early. I bet he didn't go back to sleep. Or I will die. Or I will die. Or I will, I got to do something. I have got to get her back. Where, it, what? Somebody find Abraham. Let's get, let's get some donkeys, camels. Somebody go out and get that guy. Get him here. I am done with this. Let's move on. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials. And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Remember that phrase. They were very much afraid. Kind of unlike Lot's reaction. <laughs> yeah, I know you're going to destroy the city. Let, let's, let's sleep on it. They were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, how do you think he said this? What have you done to us? Do you, do you think it was kind of nonchalant? What have you done to us? I, I think he said, what have you done to us? Right? I mean, it's not in there, but I think it's in there. You know what I'm saying? Like if the Bible could yell at you, that might be one of the places it's yelling. What have you done to us? What have you, I mean, how how have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You know, our behaviors and our actions have consequences for others. (laughs) Abraham's getting called out here. He's gone to the principal's office. What have I done? You have done things to me that should never be done. (laughs) Here's a pagan king who knows that this should have never been done to anybody. And the prophet of God. Hey, tell him you're my sister. Let's play that whole game again. And Abimelech asked Abraham. (laughs) I find myself asking my kids this question too. And I bet you God asked me this question regularly too. What was your reason for doing this? (laughs) You think Abraham has a good reason? Let's read and find out. Abraham replied, I said to myself, self, there is surely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Okay. Did you see the repetition of the idea? There is surely no fear of God in this place. But when Abimelech told the officials what God had told them in the dream, they were all afraid. Abraham's a bonehead. That's just, that's the short version of this story. Okay? By the way, this is a mirror. And Steve is looking into it. And so are you. (laughs) Moral of the story, Steve's a bonehead. Great. Let's keep reading see if there's hope for boneheads. 
Besides, she really is my sister. And she is. Okay? Um, he explains it to us. Um, and this is troubling to us in our culture. And it's actually later on in the Old Testament. This is not allowed. The daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Lame excuse, don't you think? And here's kind of the first point. Oh, we've, we've had a bunch of points. Well, here's the first point that I meant to make. Half-truths designed to deceive are still lies. It's true that she is his sister. It's true. But half-truths that are designed to deceive are still lies. That hurts, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Dramatic coughing pause there. Man. We know when we're being deceptive. We know when we are leveraging half-truths or truth to our advantage to deceive others. We know when we're doing it. Abraham knew he was doing this. He was doing it to save his own neck. And in so doing, he was demonstrating he didn't have any faith in God. He doubted God still after God has repeatedly appeared to him and said, I will make you into a mighty nation. I will give you a son by Sarah. Abraham still doubts. And all of us go, what a bonehead. God appeared to him. If God would appear to me and tell me what to do, I'm pretty sure I'd believe it. If God would show up to me in a dream, I'm pretty sure I would get it right the first time. There would be no doubt. There would be no ambiguity. I would do the right thing, right? Is that where you are? What is this? The word of God. Abraham is at the very beginning of the book. He didn't have this thing. You and I have this thing. My guess is if you're like your typical American household, you have four or five of these things lying around in your home in different versions, different translations. And sometimes you get it out and you read it. If I would just hear from the Lord, I wouldn't doubt. I wouldn't be afraid. I would trust. I would do. I would do it right. And then we think, well, this just isn't good enough. It's boring. Number one, you have to read it. That's difficult. It's hard. It's difficult to understand. If he'd just show up in a dream. You know, every single time he shows up in a dream in the Bible... It's usually not a good thing. Just FYI. So, Abraham gives the lame excuse. Then Abimelech doesn't even respond to it. I think he's like, you know, the teacher who has heard the excuse, my dog ate my homework. And instead of arguing with the child, just, you know, get out of here. Abimelech doesn't even bother. He says, Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah's wife to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. 
And to Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. That's a lot of shekels. This is to cover the offense. By the way, in my Bible, it says 25 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God did not hear him because Abraham was a bonehead. Oh, sorry. I was read, I was seeing my mirror in there. Isn't that how we think sometimes? Isn't that how we process our relationship with God sometimes? And Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. God is faithful when we are faithless. There's hope for boneheads like Abraham. There's hope for boneheads like Steve. There's hope for boneheads. That should be a bumper sticker someplace. God is faithful when we are faithless. And here Abraham, he did this 25 years ago. It's become his go-to sin when he finds himself in a bind, in a pinch, in a difficult place, when his options are to trust God or to figure out his own way. This is the way he does it on his own. This is his signature sin. Sadly, do you know that signature sins have consequences? I mean, I, w- I wish I could just point this rosy, beautiful picture for you that and then they all lived happily ever after. And there was butterflies and unicorns and a rainbow and, and Shrek music played and donkey danced. And I wish the story went that way. But uh, if you've read through Genesis, you know how the story goes. You see, Abraham has a son named Isaac. It happens in the next chapter. Don't read ahead. He has a son named Isaac. And you know what Isaac does? Isaac lies to some strangers. Just flat out lie. Doesn't even tell a half truth like Abraham did. Abraham told a half truth. She's my sister. No, she really is my sister. Isaac used the same deal. She's my sister. No, she's not really my sister. He told a flat out lie. To strangers. And then Isaac had two sons. And their names were Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was the promised son. Jacob was the younger son. But it was the one that the promises for Israel were going to be realized through. And Jacob, his very name means deceiver. And Jacob. His mom liked him because he liked to watch the home network with her. And he was good around in the in the he he was good at cutting vegetables and esau his dad liked him because he liked to go out hunting and fishing and and so dad was on his deathbed and so isaac told esau go out and kill some game bring it back prepare it the way i like it and i will bless you and when he says i'm going to bless you he means i'm going to reveal to you my will your inheritance this was legally binding. It's, it, it's like when you go to the lawyer and you have your last will and testament all put together and then you share it with the kids. All right, here's what so-and-so's getting. Here's what you are getting. Here's, and, and that's what's about to happen. And his wife 
overhears. And she likes Jacob more because he's good with cooking. And she's like, Jacob, go get one of the goats. I'm going to prepare it the way your dad likes it. And you'll take it into him because he's about to bless Esau with the inheritance. And one thing you need to know is that he couldn't see very well because he's old. His eyesight's failing him. And one of the differences between the two boys is one was really hairy and one was really smooth-skinned. The outdoorsy one was the hairy one and the mama's boy was the smooth-skinned one. And so he, he says, Mom, what am I going to do if he touches me? And she's like, don't worry about it. We'll just take uh, the goat skin and we'll put it on you. And so they put the goat skin on Jacob and he takes the meal that mom has prepared him. And it didn't take him very long. And, and, and Isaac's a little surprised that it didn't take him long to hunt and to kill and to prepare. And he says, boy, that was quick. And he's like, well, your God gave me favor and he helped me out with getting a deer or whatever it was. And he said, come near me so I can touch you. And Jacob comes near Isaac and Jacob reaches out and touches him or Isaac reaches out and touches Jacob. And he says, well, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but (laughs) the skin is the skin of Esau. Imagine if you felt like a goat. Anyways. (laughs) And he blesses Jacob. And the sin of Abraham is repeated. Only this time. His grandson lies to his father to steal his brother's inheritance. The signature sin of Abraham's family repeats itself. And you think, boy, that's really bad. It gets worse. You see, Jacob, he ends up having four wives and he ends up having lots of children. Eleven boys. And a bunch of girls, but they don't name them. And there is one boy who's his favorite. Because he came from his favorite wife, which, guys, just FYI, that's always a bad situation to be in. The one wife you have should be your favorite wife, anyways. And he gives this boy, Joseph, a technicolor dream coat. A coat of many colors, and along comes a sign that says, I'm dad's favorite. And it's like all the other brothers just go, yeah, that's, that's Joe, that's dad's favorite. Ugh. Irritating. And Joseph is, is an idiot. Joseph is. He's not smart. He brags. He talks about how he had a dream and everybody was bound down to him. And all you're going to bow down to me someday. And, and when you're an older brother, that doesn't go very well. When your younger brother comes and says, I'm going to rule over you someday. And you're like, no, you're not little punk here. Come over here. And you beat him down and you just keep him going down. And it was so bad that Joseph didn't have to go out and work because dad kept him nearby because he didn't want him to work and, you know, get a backache or strain himself somehow. And so the older boys are out and they are tending to his father's flock. And he sends Joseph with lunch. He says, hey, go get a report about the boys. Take lunch. Joseph goes and his 10 older brothers, they see him coming in the distance and they say, there's that dreamer. Let's get him. In fact, the way they decide to get him is, let's kill him. 
And then Reuben, the oldest, he's not very comfortable with this idea. And so he decides, you know what? Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a cistern and he'll die of starvation and, and, and we won't have his blood on our hands. And actually what Reuben was doing was he's deceiving his other brothers because later that day he's going to come back and get him and get him out of there. Well, it didn't go as planned. They throw him into the cistern. And Reuben comes back after lunch and Joseph is gone. And he tells his brothers, where's Joseph? What's happened? They're like, hey, man, while you were gone, we saw a caravan of Ishmaelites and we decided let's not kill the boy. Let's sell him into slavery. Let's make a little money. And so they sold him into slavery. They took his nice jacket. They ripped it up. They dipped it into goat's blood. They took it back to dad and they said, hey, dad, is this your son's coat? It looks like a wild animal killed Joe. And it devastated their father, Jacob. In fact, it was so devastating that he mourned and grieved for decades. And the signature sin in Abraham's family was repeated when his great grandsons lied to their father to cover up selling their little brother into slavery. Is there anything we can learn from this? Is there anything the mirror of Scripture is trying to teach us by looking at these signature sins? No, this is not a fun one. But it's true. Don't be surprised when your children copy your actions, but not your boundaries. You see, Abraham had boundaries around his signature sin. He was just going to tell a half truth to deceive people. But the kids, they copied that behavior, but they expanded the boundaries. They started by just telling lies to strangers, and then they lied to dads. And don't be surprised if your signature sin, if my signature sin is caught by your kids. There's a saying that I hold near and dear to my heart. It's this, Christianity is caught not taught. Parents, if your kid graduates from church when they're 18 and mine are young and I pray for them daily, but we have a job as parents to infect our kids with Christ. It's not the church's job. It's not a Sunday school teacher's job. It's your God-given responsibility as a parent to infect your kids with Christ. You're going to infect them with something. You're going to infect them with a signature sin that's already done. And there's no getting around that. But the remedy, the antidote for that signature sin is the gift of Christ, is the grace of Christ. Here's the good news. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. I'm a crooked stick. Abraham was a crooked stick. His whole family lineage was a bunch of crooked sticks. But God drew a straight line. Because when you read about Father Abraham in the New Testament, they don't busy themselves with these stories and his failures. They just say, Father Abraham had many sons. He was a man of great faith. 
And they're not trying to whitewash it. You can go and read it in the Old Testament. They know that. They're not trying to whitewash it. What they are saying is the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, took that crooked stick and drew a straight line. And if you read this story of Abraham and you see in yourself a signature sin, you see yourself a crooked, depraved, broken person, it's hope for you. If you see in your kids that they are crooked and bent the same way you are, there's hope for them. If you see in your family line, looking back to your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather, your mother, your grandmother and your great-grandmother, and you see that signature sin playing over and over and over again in your family, there's hope for you. Because there's one. There's one who wasn't a crooked stick. There's one whose father was perfect. There's one who didn't have this innate, inborn nature of self-destruction. And that person is Jesus Christ. And the person, Jesus Christ, came and he lived a perfect life. And that is never emphasized nearly enough by theologians or by us Christians that Jesus never had to say, I'm sorry. Jesus never had to say, I messed up. Please forgive me. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for our sins. And that's where the hope for us lies. That's where the hope for Abraham lied. It's amazing God claimed him in this story. After Abraham kept falling into the same signature sin again and again and again and again and again. And you see where that, le that leads to that young man or that young woman or that old man or that old woman in that car going to that spot, driving around every single time they go. God still says, you're mine. And in spite of your faithlessness. I will prove myself faithful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us when we do not trust you, live by it, listen to it. Forgive us when we give in to our signature sins and we find ourselves once again in that place we hate and don't want to be. But thank you more than that, that you still claim us as your own. That there is forgiveness at the cross of Christ. And thank you that in spite of ourselves, you still want to know us and love us and use us for your glory and your kingdom. Father, help us to trust, to know you better. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face toward you and be gracious to you. He always is. May you know that when you are faithless, he is faithful. Amen.